Well, today we have the privilege of welcoming uh, David Garofalo to our show. Uh, David is the Chief Executive Officer and President and the Chairman of the Board of Directors of Gold Royalty. And Gold Royalty is a streaming company and uh, has tremendous uh, assets already on the books, uh, along with many projects developing. Um, you know, he has uh, over 30 years of experience in creating and growing multi-billion dollar sustainable mining businesses. Uh, he's here to educate us on how important the precious metals royalty market is to the mining industry and how you can diversify your investment portfolio. So this is an interesting interview for me because I come uh, at this from uh, a trader's perspective. We've traded uh, over many years, going all the way back to 1992 when I started uh, my foray into, I started in, in, in gold mining stocks, uh, copper and gold and silver. And, uh, and so we did a lot of, uh, you know, investing over the years, trading and uh, a particular strategy called pairs trading, which is really interesting that one of the pairs that we had that was our favorite was Gold Corp Long against Newmont or other uh, stocks like American Barrick and Short. And um, not to say anything bad about them, but that was where the relationship found an edge in, in the Gold Corp Long. And um, David uh, was instrumental in putting together that merger or facilitating that merger between Newmont and uh, Gold Corp. So we lost the pair to trade. Um, but uh, it's fascinating to have this opportunity to speak to David today. So, um, yeah, just uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background in natural resources and, uh, you know, how you became the CEO of Gold Royalty, which is a really fascinating company. We want to explore this a little bit more here today. Well, it's interesting you brought up the merger uh, between Newmont and Gold Corp. And today, uh, or in the last several days, Newmont launched a bid for Newcrest. And that brings back memories from four years ago, um, almost five years ago now, when I was negotiating actually between Newcrest and Newmont. It was a bit of a horse race. Not many people right. are aware that Newcrest was in the background. So it's ironic that Newmont and Newcrest are now potentially coming together after having competed for Gold Corp back in, in late 2018. And when we announced the deal in early 2019, um, we got a premium offer very similar to the premium offer that Newmont's put on the table for Newcrest uh, of about 20%. So, so that certainly brings back some memories. But um, to, to your question about my background, um, I ran Gold Corp most recently uh, and, and um, engineered the merger between um, Newmont and Gold Corp, which to this day is the largest gold merger in history at $2 billion. Um, obviously, will be eclipsed if they're successful in getting new crest. Uh, and, you know, well, records, are meant, records are meant to be broken. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, and with the two companies that, that competed for, for Gold Corp. So it, it is ironic that things have come full circle. But I started in the mining business actually back in 1990. So I've been in the business for, for 33 years and started initially in the base metal business with InMet Mining. Um, and uh, it, that was a copper business predominantly um, throughout throughout the world. In fact, we had operations in, in Africa, Asia, Australia, um, Europe, um, and North America. Uh, then joined Igneco Eagle for 12 years as CFO. Uh, through its formative years, we went from a $200 million market cap company to $10 billion by the time I left. 
And Ignico's obviously grown well beyond that since then through a series of acquisitions. And then I ran HUD Bay back on the copper side for about six years and built three mines there, uh, predominantly the, the Constancia mine in Peru, which is one of the biggest copper producers in South America, and uh, then went to run Gold Corp. Uh, so been in the mine development, mine operating side for my entire career, even though I'm a financial person by training, but really was intimately involved in the construction of about 15 mines in my career and, and operated countless more. Um, and uh, I think it's instructive that I've switched over to the royalty side at this stage of the cycle because I'm I'm a bull on the metals, but I am concerned about uh, the ravages of inflation and the impact that's going to have on cost structures right. in the mining business. And I'd rather have top line exposure than actually taking on all the responsibility and the risk associated with building operating mines. Well, I find it interesting, too, that... Um You've been able to, I believe, successfully pivot into the sustainable area with uh, zero net emissions and zero net water consumption, whether that's sort of the long range goal uh, or whether it's it's being achieved as we speak. But but I think with all the regulatory concerns and the rising environmental agendas, I, I think that's only a smart uh, focus and pivot. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, certainly. Uh, I mean, we can't control the ESG practices of our operating partners day to day. We're, we're royalty right. uh, royalty owners, but we have stringent ESG criteria before we put any capital to work. So when we're doing our due diligence, uh, we do have a very heavy filter in terms of what companies will partner with on the royalty side. And we've looked at over 250 opportunities since we IPO'd uh, a little over a little under two years ago. And we've only executed in eight transactions, uh, three M&A deals merged us with other companies, but also uh, we picked up some individual royalty opportunities as well uh, through third party acquisitions, project financings and the like. And so we've we've rejected far more uh, royalty opportunities than we've actually executed on. And uh, a key criteria in many of those rejections was the safety, environmental um, and social practices of the companies. And so if you look at our partnerships now, we have 75 partners. Um, we have 215 royalties wow. with 75 operating partners and predominantly with the largest cap uh, gold companies in the world. Um, you know, right. we have royalties with Ignico's properties, with Barrick's properties, with Newmont's properties. And so we've exposed ourselves to well-capitalized partners with very stringent ESG practices and with long-term objectives of getting to net zero uh, in terms of, uh, uh, of carbon emissions and hopefully eventually getting a net zero on water, though I think the industry is a long way from that still. So when you IPO'd, I mean, you had um, the next year, 2021, you had a lot of uh, expenditures to get in some of these relationships and start developing. And I see that uh, your revenues really kicked in your sales um, substantially in 2022 so it looks like some of that stuff's paying off but you also increased your cap table there um so uh, you still feel a, a pretty good balance between your shares outstanding and uh your sales your potential revenue you have no debt so that's exciting Can you yeah talk a little I mean, bit about your fundamentals yeah. here yeah, very conservatively capitalized. Uh, we raised $90 million in our IPO uh, in March of 2021. We were aiming to raise 30, but we had a very, very strong order book. Um, actually, it was $140 million of orders. So we tripled the size of our IPO, achieved a very strong valuation on the strength of 
18 development stage assets in the Americas. Uh, none of them were cash flowing at the time, uh, but recognizing that we needed cash flowing assets, uh, we used our currency to start rolling up some of our peer companies. Uh, we bought Ely Gold, Golden Valley and Abitibi royalties. And through the acquisition of those companies, we went from 18 royalties in development stage assets to over 190 royalties as a result of those M&A transactions. And we brought in significant cash flowing royalties as a result of those deals. And so now we have today 215 royalties. We have eight that are cash flowing currently. We have another 15 that are in various stages of construction. And that underpins 60% compounded annual growth in our revenue over the next decade. So we're going to go from our first full fiscal year last year, we had just under $6 million of revenue. By the end of this decade, we'll be at about $60 million of revenue. So 10 million of revenue. And that's from a standing start of zero at our IPO. Uh, so it's a remarkable growth. And it is by far uh, the highest growth rate in revenue in the entire royalty space. And, and given that we have a scalable business, we have eight employees. Uh, we could run okay. a business 10 times the size with the same eight employees. We could have 2,000 royalties. And I wouldn't need any more employees. Our GNA is very flat. So okay. that means that every incremental dollar of revenue growth goes right to the bottom line and increases our potential uh, dramatically of raising our dividend over time. That's certainly the objective as we ramp up and realize that revenue growth. And the other thing I should point out, those 215 royalties are fully bought and paid for. We never have to put another dime in them. We don't have no capital calls. Uh, right. So that we just have to wait and harvest. Uh, that's basically what we have to do with that portfolio. But not only that, our operating partners are aggressively drilling out their their uh, their assets. But we contribute nothing to those expiration budgets. Last year, our operating partners invested $200 million U.S. or about 700,000 meters of diamond drilling on their properties. We contributed nothing to that, but we benefited from that expiration upside. Um, and so that's really the attractive thing about the royalty model is it gives you full leverage of the gold price, full leverage to expiration, but completely insulates you from inflation because it's top line exposure. Right. Well, from from an investor's perspective, looking at a, a company that has no debt, that is extremely efficient, and your operating margins are great, your gross margin is 55% plus, um, and you have a dividend, you're getting paid for you know holding the stock and that's a 1.73% annual dividend. So that's that's not, you know, that's not chump change. That's pretty good for, for a stock of, the, of this nature. I look at trading and investing kind of like, where can you find the utility businesses? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, would you rather be a speculator or would you rather own, you know, a car wash or would you rather own you know, a storage facility, you know, you want that utility type of business. And I think that's with streaming. What I'd like you to explain, because some of our audience may not understand how a streaming deal actually works. You go to Newmont and, and you've got lots of properties. You want to uh, partner with them on a streaming thing. Why would, first of all, why would they be interested? I mean, they, they're well capitalized anyway. Why do they need to give away some of their royalty to you? What is, how does the that work in setting up a streaming deal? Well, there, there are a few ways, a few avenues for us to create royalties and streams. Um, you know, one is uh, doing a project financing with an emerging producer or developer who doesn't otherwise have access to the capital markets. So they want to start a mine 
uh, they want to explore for a mine, we provide capital and take a royalty back. So it's not a loan. Uh, it's it's a, a permanent capital infusion, but we can get paid back through royalties through a percentage of the gross revenue when it becomes a productive mine. So that's one avenue. The other right. is sometimes prospectors um, who have uh, state claims uh, sold their properties to operating companies, but they retained a royalty and they decide they want to crystallize the value of that royalty. So they'll approach us to sell the royalty and we end up with a royalty on uh, producing mines like we have on Cote Gold in Ontario. Uh, that's a, a mine that I am Gold's bringing into production next year, half a million ounces a year of production. They're investing uh, several billion dollars in the construction of it. Uh, we had a prospector's widow approach us, so the estate of a prospector, about um, realizing um, you know, value on that royalty. They wanted to sell it after the prospector passed away so the widow could support herself. And we paid $16 million for that royalty. Uh, but it'll be cash flowing next year, dramatic cash flows for us, a big step change. And so we, we paid for that royalty that way. Another way we do it is we stake expiration claims around existing mines um, and we wait for the neighbors to knock on the door and say, we need your property because deposits don't know man-made boundaries. So quite often an operator will be exploring and they'll find that their deposit trends into our property. And then what we do is we farm the property out to the operator and take a royalty back on it. So that's why right. the right. royalties, it's a very cheap way for them to acquire property. And it's very cost effective for us because it doesn't require any investment in the ground. We just stake the claims and wait wait for the neighbors right. to knock and we have effectively infinite rates of return on those types of opportunities because all we do is put in some sweat equity you know we have a small right. team in Valdor, quebec we have a small team in reno nevada and all they do is stake expiration claims all day opportunistically around existing deposits and wait for the neighbors to knock on the door that's a good strategy you know it's like uh, it's like playing chess it's a game of position and it's a game of patience and time <laughs> So, precisely. Yeah, precisely. Yeah. Now, um, you know, from a trading and investing perspective, people also, you know, look at the prospects of whether, you know, we're in a new bull phase for commodities. I look at things related to the U.S. dollar because commodities are priced in dollars. And so I felt that the U.S. dollar was a very crowded trade as we shifted into inflation because you can park your money there and you know get a, a better return than speculating so last year was a very crowded trade it began to ease in the fall and i uh, on my podcast i talked a lot about uh you know if the us dollar starts to ease that could put a floor under uh some of the commodities especially the metals which are inversely correlated to the dollar so that means if the dollar uh falls that commodities especially metals could rise um so you know we caught uh, some of that uh you know in a pretty timely fashion and now we're we've kind of stabilized here for a little bit with the dollar uh what's your thoughts and how does that affect your business if say the dollar was to head back up or the dollar was to decline further from here how does that impact your business well, it's interesting. Um, uh, the gold price, even though it's not at all-time highs uh, on a nominal basis in U.S. dollar terms, is actually at all-time highs in virtually every other major currency in the world. Um, so gold is a currency at the end of the day. 
And the way gold trades, um, it's not, I don't think it's a commodity. I don't think demand supply fundamentals really drive the gold price up and down. It's really a, a relative trade relative to other currencies. And what drives currencies up and down against each other is relative interest rates. Right. And today, um, interest rates are going up on a nominal basis in the U.S. The Federal Reserve has been tightening. But my argument is that headline inflation numbers are dramatically understated. Uh, we're not nobody's realizing seven, eight percent inflation. I think all of us, if we look at our cost of living, are experiencing more like 15 to 25 percent inflation. Yeah. And and so I think real interest rates are actually going down, even as nominal rates are going up. And it seems like the Federal Reserve is actually poised to pivot over the course of this year to lower interest rates, even on a nominal basis, which will drive real interest rates deeper and deeper into negative territory. That's precisely when you want to be in hard assets, in particular gold as a currency, because while gold yields zero, treasuries are yielding negative on a real basis. Inflation is eating away at capital. Um, it's eating away at purchasing power. And gold is the ultimate protector of your purchasing power in that type of environment. And so right. I think it will start to appreciate against the U.S. dollar, we think, quite dramatically over the coming year or so, as people realize that real interest rates are actually quite negative. Well, we had some distraction from the crypto space for you know a number of mm -hmm. years where it was like, well, that's the new gold. And you know it's so, so much easier to transport. And um, I, I mean, personally, uh, although I have, I think there's some use cases, um, you know, I've always wondered when, when that, uh, shiny, you know, gloss would come off the, uh, the, the Bitcoin and other crypto and, uh, and that it would return kind of onto, you know, base metals again. And, and, um, you know, people would kind of come to their senses a little bit. So what's your thoughts on all that? Well, undoubtedly, uh, crypto um, ate our lunch for a little while uh, in the precious metal space. I mean, we were uh, we have been the ultimate reserve currency for four millennia. And we've had a new generation of investors that have come into the market, uh, do everything on their smartphones. And here was a currency that spoke to them. It was available on their smartphone, easy to trade. Um, and and I think that intuitively, young investors understood that their fiat currencies were being debased and they were looking right. for ways reserve capital and, and they saw the cryptocurrency as that lifesaver that they were looking for. Um, but uh, unfortunately, there's no intrinsic value to virtually all right. the cryptocurrencies. At one point, there were 8,000 cryptocurrencies at the peak of the market and uh, 7,999 of them probably had zero value. Uh, they were right. momentum play. Um, I, I do believe that digital currencies are here to stay, but I think there'll be a, a, a much smaller subset of them that will have any value. And the reason they're here to stay is because blockchain's here to stay. I think blockchain will revolutionize transactions globally, will remove a lot of friction uh, between buyers and sellers, uh, remove the middleman. I think it's a necessary evolution of how the supply chain will work. And we need digital right. currencies in order to participate in that. But we need digital currencies that have some scarcity value. Bitcoin does, there's a finite quantity of them, but we don't need 8,000 digital currencies in order to participate in the blockchain. We probably need a couple. And I would say that uh, there's intrinsic value in that. All the other of it, all, all the rest of it is a Ponzi scheme. Um, yeah. Nothing physically backing them and their momentum play, trade. And, um, you know, the last dollar in will, will end in tears at the end of the day. Um, so I think gold will come back and prevail as a, a, a preserver of capital because of its scarcity value, because it's physical properties, because of its indestructibility. 
And it's no accident that the developing world is rapidly diversifying their central bank reserves into gold. Um, you know, China is the biggest consumer of gold in the world, but it's also the biggest producer. Uh, they produce more gold than any other country. None of it leaves their shores. And in fact, they're the biggest importer of gold in spite of the fact that they're the biggest producer. So they are diversifying at an individual and central bank level as quickly as they can because they understand that fiat currencies are being debased. And also uh, China has designs on creating an alternative reserve currency to the U.S. dollar. And one of the reasons the U.S. dollar has prevailed as a reserve currency for so long is because they have the biggest reserves of gold in the world at the Federal Reserve. That's no accident. Now, yes, it's not. Uh, there's no gold standard anymore. That that was abandoned in the early 1970s, but they didn't sell any of their gold because uh, they understood the value of having that in their central bank reserves. And the Chinese are getting that. The Russians have been diversifying in the gold. The developed world, the developing world, I should say, is is diversifying in the gold because they deal quite often with an avalanche of foreign exchange proceeds and they're diversifying away from those U.S. dollars and other currencies as quickly as they can into hard assets of finite and quantity. Well, and, and the, the fact that the U.S. is the reserve currency should stress more fiscal responsibility, fiduciary responsibility in a sense. Um, yeah. So it seems to me that they've ex exported inflation to other parts of the world, uh, even greater than what we're experiencing in the U.S. or North America. That's right. Um, so yeah. it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, do you have exposure to copper? We've had quite a bit of, um, mm. you know, recessionary implications that, you know, if, if we do go to global recession or we're already in it, some say, um, you know, that copper isn't uh, as necessary. But then there's the other argument for the EV uh, world and, uh, you know, environmental, solar, ESG in general. Um, so we're seeing, you know, copper did pick up a little bit off the bottom. And I think the prospects are could be quite good for copper going forward in the, in the next decade or more. What's your thoughts? Yeah, well, some of our foundational assets um, were copper gold porphyries. And so we do have about 5% of our metal exposure is in copper. And I am a huge bull on copper. Um, and I've spent half of my career in the copper business, having built copper mines in, in throughout the world. Um, and, and I believe in the decarbonization trade. Uh, I think that copper consumption is going to increase exponentially. Uh, driven by uh, electrical electric vehicle drive to decarbonize our vehicle fleets globally. Uh, the amount of copper used in an electric vehicle is three times what you'd have in a traditional internal combustion engine. So that, that means an exponential increase in demand for copper. Um, and I also believe the electrification, continued electrification of the developing world is hugely copper intensive as well. Um, you know, still the majority of the Chinese population is rural. It's going to be urbanized, and that results in uh, expansion of electric grid, uh, the consumption of, um, you know, white goods, uh, uh, you know, in terms of uh, stoves and fridges and whatnot, which, again, is very, very copper intensive. So I, I think copper demand is burgeoning, will continue to increase dramatically. I have no idea where the supply is going to come from. Um, there's virtually no large greenfield copper projects under construction in the world. That's right what now. I've heard, that we're in a real shortage. It's a, a potential uh, bigger problem than even what we've seen with gold. 
And there's been massive disruptions of existing supply. You know, the social unrest in Peru has dramatically curtailed production out of Peru. And Peru is the second biggest producer of copper in the world after Chile. Right. Um, So, you know, that that is a huge impediment to supply. It's not just about bringing new supply on, but maintaining the reliability of existing supply. And when there's social unrest, as there has been in Peru, there's been dramatic curtailments of existing supply. So that's going to ultimately and inevitably lead to a, a squeeze on the copper price. Uh, we're going to have to bring copper prices up much higher to incentivize any new supply. So it'd be a similar concern as what we have with rare earth uh, minerals and lithium and other things is, is that if we're going to have this expansion, you know, into sustainable uh, energy and all that, um, copper is going to be essential for that, just like these, these things. And, geopolitical concerns are, are significant. Um, yeah. And, we, and, had, and, we had quite and a wake-up call with our, our supply chain uh, through the aftermath of COVID. And uh, and we're still, it's still not completely resolved because many things were shuttered during that period of time and they haven't been brought back online because of the economics of it, right? Precisely. And, and I don't want to leave you with the impression that supply chain disruptions are a phenomenon unique to the developing world. We have that issue within um, North America. Um, you know, you right. have a president in the U.S. and a prime minister in Canada who've laid, laid out some lofty objectives and admirable objectives to electrify all of our vehicles by 2035. Right. Uh, but with no uh, understanding of where the, the supply chain will come from to support that kind of objective. And there's a disassociation from reality in both of those jurisdictions because there's been no move to stimulate uh, the development of new copper projects in either jurisdiction. In fact, it's quite the opposite. You know, when I was running Hud Bay Minerals, uh, we had a copper project in Tucson, Arizona, which is a traditional copper district with significant copper production already there. To get new mining projects permitted there is virtually impossible. Right. Um, And that's in a traditional copper district. Uh, and that's because there's absolutely no impetus from the federal government to to bring copper projects forward. How do they hope to uh, fill the supply chain with the copper they need if they can't get any new domestic copper production created? They're going to continue to rely on the developing world to, to, to feed their copper. And that will result in probably more supply chain disruptions than they're even aware of going forward. So the regulatory uh, risks are significant. You're trying to be forward looking and sort of create a bit of an edge for yourself to, you know, with with your zero net emissions and zero net water consumption. Um, But, I mean, you still see regulatory challenges globally. And uh, that could just create more scarcity, right? Indeed. And again, I think it's inevitable that you're going to see a squeeze on the price. It's going to be an upwards dramatic squeeze in order to, uh, you know, to make um, uh, to, to make the incentive, the prices at a high enough incentive level to stimulate uh, new supply from around the world. We're not anywhere near incentive prices for copper. Uh, I think we're going to see much higher prices in order to stimulate that kind of supply. Now, now from a trader's perspective, we've always looked at, you know, what companies are doing with hedging. And that applies to, you know, it could be airlines with oil. It could be you know, gold companies with, you know, using futures to to hedge. Um, 
And so how does how does it the streaming world differentiate from say you know XYZ company that has a lot of their gold forward sold and and they're really hedged and they're locked into certain prices how how does that affect you guys well it, it, you know we're we're completely unhedged um and and we provide optimum leverage to the gold price um we effectively uh are fully fully uh, linked to the gold price in terms of our revenue so we provide that uh, volatility that you expect uh, that beta to the bullion price that you're looking for when you're buying um, a gold royalty or a gold portfolio. Um, you're looking for optimum leverage while trying to protect yourself from inflation risk. Unfortunately, mining companies uh, by and large are not immune uh, from inflation we're seeing in the general economy. And so they see some of that leverage curtailed as a result of the inflation overhang on their cost structures, whether it's capital or operating costs. And that's why uh, in these types of inflationary cycles, We've seen a significant underperformance of mining equities to the to bullion price and certainly relative to royalty companies that provide that optimum leverage while insulating investors from cost inflation. Okay. Can you talk a little bit about uh, central bankers' actions and even countries? Like we saw some fractional pegging with Russia with uh, you know gold, some, I think fractionally. Um, and uh, that really put a floor under their currency there last year. It was one of the better performing currencies in the world. Um, but uh, how do you see, you know, central's banker bankers actions? Are they still, you know, really aggressively buying? Um, and, you know, what does that, uh, how, how do you view things? I'm just interested, curious about that. Yeah, look, yeah, from a gold perspective, it's been a huge source of demand, central bank buying, particularly in the developing world where they're trying to uh, underpin uh, the integrity of their fiat currencies by having uh, a strong physical presence of gold in their central bank reserves. And as I said earlier on, China has been the biggest consumer of gold in the world, both in terms of all of their domestic supply, but also being the largest importer of gold in the world. Russia has been a big buyer of gold. Uh, as well, uh, trying to underpin uh, their currency in, in this um, socially volatile environment they find themselves in with this war in Ukraine. Um, right. And I would say if you look across the developing world, ones that are, have significant foreign currency proceeds through exports uh, of energy generally are diversifying in the gold as rapidly as they can. So we've seen big central bank buying and the opportunity cost of owning gold isn't there. Um, you know, they they recognize that, you know, owning U.S. Treasuries yields negative on a real basis. So they might as well own gold. There is no opportunity cost to owning gold. It, it preserves capital in an environment where fiat currencies continue to be debased through monetary expansion. OK, interesting. Um, so what do you think going forward here in the next um, 10 years? You know, I've been talking about we may be experiencing in equities kind of a lost decade with, you know, some of the, the fact that the, the punch bowl has been taken away, all the, the stimulus and, and the, the free money, um, you know, that people were able to launch into a, a lot of projects that, you know, Hey, this, this tech company might make money in 2035, but, you know, Right now, of course, we're we're losing money. We've got a cash burn rate and so on. But people were still buying it and speculating and driving these prices up. And we saw, you know, quite a bubble in in you know those speculative assets. 2022, 
brought things back down to fundamentals do matter. And many, you know, I mean, I'll give you an example. The Dow was only down, say, roughly 9% for the year, where the NASDAQ was down 31% for the year. So that just shows you, you know, the type of uh, sentiment that was there. So if we we go out, you know, 10 years here with a kind of a lost decade for equities, um, how do you view that in terms of your your share price and and your and the opportunity to invest in in G R O Y, which is your ticker symbol on the uh, N Y S E American, right? That's that's exactly right. Uh, look, I, I think um, the Federal Reserve is and, and central banks globally have created the illusion that they're fighting inflation, but um, they're really not. Um, nominal rates are still well below where the headline numbers are and even well below where real inflation is. It, as I said, it's not seven, eight percent. It's more like 15 to 25 percent is inflation on the ground. So they're trying to create an illusion of tightening, but that's really not the reality. And they don't have the scope or latitude to raise interest rates dramatically anyways, because debt to GDP levels globally are at 350 percent relative to where they were in the 70s in the last big inflationary cycle when they were only 100 percent. So the central banks back in the 70s had the ability to raise interest rates without worrying about whether they were bankrupting governments. That's a real concern right now. Debt service in the U.S., for example, has grown to about a trillion dollars a year. That's one out of every seven dollars of tax revenue generated. What that tells you is that there's limited scope for them to raise rates much more beyond this without creating a huge fiscal imbalance. Um, And so I, I think you're going to see uh, a grand pivot uh, in nominal rates over the they're, course they're of the forced to, really, yeah, because of that. Yeah. And so I think central banks will start to ratchet rates down at the end of the year. And if anything, that'll further entrench and inflame inflation. I think inflation's here to stay, but that's really where they want uh, inflation to go anyways, because the only way to deal with the ma- massive amount of debt strapped on by governments, corporations, and individuals is basically to inflate the debt away. Well, you know, we're in this infinite age of moral hazard here. How do we get out of it? Because, I mean, uh, Fed Chair, Chair Powell said, you know, the government should raise the debt ceiling. So what, what, is this, what does this mean? It's just like debt, 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 debt doesn't matter. I mean, how do we get out of this? <laughs> Go back to the gold standard? <laughs> what has to happen here? Yeah, it, it, it kind of is. It's kind of a grand currency reset. Um, and that means the continued failure of a number of fiat currencies in the world. And, and I say continued because there have been failures of fiat currencies. It's not a, there has a long time phenomenon. People think of the Weimar Republic back at the, uh, after the First World War and Germany's collapse as the last big fiat currency collapse. Well, no. I mean, there's currency collapses occurring each and every day around the world. I mean, the Turkish lira has effectively collapsed. Oh. Zimbabwe well, dollar has collapsed. It was bad before the earthquake, not let alone this uh, you yeah. know, once in a century earthquake type thing here now. So No, no. Argentinian peso, uh, right. the uh, Venezuelan dollar. I mean, all of these currencies, peso, they've all collapsed in, in the last decade or so. And there's going to be a continual collapse of these emerging country currencies. Fiat currencies fail. In fact, every currency ever created since the beginning of time by man has failed. Every fiat currency eventually fails because Designed the temptation, yeah, <laughs> the temptation is just too great to be. Right? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's a currency reset and yes, uh, uh, going back to a, a gold standard, uh, is inevitable, uh, because that's the only thing that will, uh, restore confidence in currencies. Uh, you know, government issued currencies is having some physical backing. So there will be a grand reset and that'll obviously be super bullish for the gold price. Yeah. And again, the, uh, the Bitcoiners would say, well, it's tough to carry a lot of gold around to do your shopping. <laughs> so, so would di digitize the, the, you know, maybe you need the crypto backed. I think some people have tried that, you know, uh, crypto backed by hard assets. But anyway, yeah, it's very, know, it, very it, interesting. I think the crypto deals with, you know, one lack of physical properties, which I touched on before and, and yeah. indestructibility. But also fungibility. I mean, you could take an ounce of gold to any country in the world and it'll be recognized for its intrinsic value. Right. If you show up your smartphone in Zimbabwe, I don't think you're going to get any value for your Bitcoin, honestly. <laughs> Let's think about that. You know, think about yeah. where fiat currencies are collapsing, whether they really want your Bitcoins. They, they don't, but they'll take an ounce of gold in a heartbeat. Yeah, so you you think that I mean, it's it's always been strange this massive disconnect between, you know, what gold represents and that intrinsic value that it has. The, f the fact of how much there is. Um, I mean, is one of the one of the problems is it can be recycled, right? It doesn't really like disappear. So I guess it's it's scarcity is a relative word with gold. Um, but um, if there's a lot of central bank demand, a lot of public demand for gold. Is there enough supply? I know that a lot of people cut out the middlemen and went straight to the producers uh, back in 2020, 2021. You probably saw that. Um, so, so it's it's just this interesting disconnect. And so, I always look to I like to look at what is the consensus, what is alternative thinking, what's the contrary and takeaways. You know, what is the herd doing versus you know where where are the edges, and I, I'm kind of, you know, leaning towards there's a real edge in this gold situation because one of the things that suppressed it was, again, the strength of the U.S. dollar since it's priced in dollars. And if, you know, we're seeing potentially decline because of unlimited spending uh, with the U.S. dollar, then, uh, you know, gold could could rise. So I'm I'm moving more and more towards the bullish camp in this area. And I'm not one of those gold bugs, but uh, it's just looking at it from a contrarian, you know, perspective, what are most people missing or, or not seeing, or why is the sentiment so bad? Right. Look, I, I think the expectation um, in the markets is that equity markets will recover uh, the federal reserve will pivot. And I think, uh, unfortunately, um, given the state of fear currencies, given that we've un gone through an unrelenting monetary expansion for years and there has to be a, a debt reset, I think that's uh, going to lead to a huge correction in equity valuations in the general equity market. Um, this reset will, will wreak a lot of damage within the equity markets and valuations of companies. And I think gold provides you protection security um, against that and also the ravages that, of, of an entrenched inflationary cycle. Yeah, but the problem the problem is here is the timing of it too. So you could have another big surge in, you know, speculative assets and these companies that don't have any 
earnings with their price, so no PEs, and uh, you know, a, a real speculative asset bubble again. If the Fed does pivot and starts, especially starts to you know relax rates or reduce them, um, again because of its problem with paying their own debt, so then we could have this big rally, which still suppresses like who's going to run into gold stocks when they can you know get a buy Tesla and get you know forty four to 70 to 100% on their on their money you know if it's rallying so that you know this well, momentum aspect will kick in again so we could have that big another rally before that reset so timing true. is tough true but i also think um uh, declining nominal interest rates will lead to a flight out of the us dollar and i do think the gold price will do exceedingly well in that environment and that's then the good, question that's, a, have, yeah, that's a yeah, good point Absolutely. And the question you have to ask yourself is how do you participate in that gold rally optimally? You can buy the physical, obviously, but what you don't get is leverage to expiration upside. And the mining equities are going to be exposed because they have inflation risk. I think right. inflation will become further entrenched and inflamed. And that's why, again, after 30 plus years of operating building mines, I'm in the royalty business. I, I really do believe in the bull scenario for gold but I want to be in an area that's protecting me from inflation while I'm participating in the gold upside and the expiration upside, uh, you know, realized by the operators through the, through the drilling efforts. Yeah. So let's, let's review the points here. So um, I have to disclose that I do not own G R O Y, but I'm interested. Um, and, you know, I'm not recommending it because I'm, I'm not an advisor. I'm just very interested. It's uh is something that's come to, to light here. So let's review the point. So if I buy it, I get paid to hold it because of the dividend. I also have a, a leveraged play then on the, you know, the future price of gold here because of the streaming. I have a utility business that has uh, no debt and has some great streaming properties and a lot of developing properties. So the portfolio is quite large. Um, any other points you can add to that? No, absolutely. You're right. It's 215 royalties. It's a level of diversification that no operating company can hope to achieve. You know, even the biggest operating companies in the world, and I ran one of them in Gold Corp with 20,000 employees, never had more than a dozen operating properties. So there's a limit to what you can diversify when you're operating mines. It's just impractical to operate 200 mines. You can operate a dozen maybe. Even the biggest ones have no more than 12 or 15 in their portfolio. Um, the other thing is we're geographically focused. 75% uh, of our royalty portfolios in Nevada, Quebec, and Ontario, both by number, but also by underlying value. And yes, we have a lot of optionality. We have a lot of royalties. We have a lot of early stage royalties from exploration through to mine development. But we also have royalties on Canada's biggest producing gold mine, Canadian Malartic. We have okay. royalties. Canada's second biggest producing gold mine, Cote, which will be operational in Q1 of next year. And we have a royalty on the underground extension of Gold Strike, which is the biggest producing gold mine in the United States. So it's not just a quantity proposition, it's a quality one. We have multi-decade foundational assets uh, with reserves that are going to outlast my lifetime uh, that provides an annuity for our shareholders for many, many decades. And then we have all this growth coming in behind it with 200 plus other royalties. That's the beauty of it. And as I said, those royalties are all bought and paid for. We don't have capital calls on them. We just have to wait and collect checks. Right. That's, that's the 
optimum uh, way to play gold in my view. So you see potentially the dividend could be increasing on those prospects. Uh, what do you think on the retained earnings side for your book value? Do you see a, a lot of increase there too, or just mostly paid out in dividends? Well, it's a good question. We haven't established a formal dividend policy yet, but we did establish a dividend coming out of the gate because we already had strong cash flow within our first year. Uh, but as that cash flow growth of 60% compounded annual growth per year crystallizes, we're in a great position to look at uh, paying out a fixed percentage of our earnings going forward. Um, okay. We haven't established that dividend policy yet, but we're going to be in a position, we think, in a year or so when much of this growth starts to crystallize to start to establish a regular dividend policy beyond what we're paying now. Okay, great. Well, um, in a fair and balanced approach, what are some negatives to the streaming business or some risks to, to your business, just to it, present that it, side it, of it? You know, we have a royalty on a collection of finite life assets. It's like anything in the mining business. Uh, you have to continually regenerate your portfolio, add more to it. It's getting access to to new deals, continue to perpetuate and grow our business. We're in a perpetual state of due diligence, um, looking at new opportunities to grow our portfolio. And as I said earlier on, we've looked at over 250 opportunities. We've only executed on eight. Um, and, and that gave us 215 royalties because some of those royalties came in larger scale portfolios. But we have to do a lot of work and turn over a lot of stones before we find something that's investable. Uh, but that's what you pay us for, right, at the end of the day is you pay us to do that due diligence. And we're well equipped to do that because in our board of management, there are a lot of people like me that have multi, multiple decades of industry experience, both on development operating side, which I think is a unique value proposition to our story. Many of our peer companies are run by financial engineers, but our, my board management is populated with people that have actually built and operated mines, which gives us two distinct advantages. One is we have a clear-eyed view of the underlying risk of what we're investing in, and we can appropriately price it. But also, given the seniority of my board of management, we can pick up the phone and talk to anybody in the industry at any level, in every company, uh, which gives us access to opportunities before many of our peers uh, even know they're, they're available. All right. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to uh, to be with you today, David. And uh, if people want to uh, look up your website, it is goldroyalty.com and a ticker symbol G-R-O-Y. And uh, anything else you want to add before we close this off? No, no, that's it. Those are the best places. We also have warrants traded on the NYC American, GROY.WS for the warrants, if you're looking for something a little torquier to play. Uh, but but uh, that covers it, goldroyalty.com, if you're looking for more information on the company and its portfolio. Well, great. Well, this is a really fun interview, very insightful, and uh, love your business model. And I'm very, very interested to uh, explore it further and uh, perhaps... Uh, even put some money to work into investing in your stock. So I haven't yet, but uh, definitely looking at it uh, seriously. So I might do it before this even airs, I have to disclose. <laughs> Thanks very much, Rob. Well, it's a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much, David.